HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. This is a message from Canal House Cooking. Canal House Cooking presents the first annual Small Holding Festival with the Kitchen Potager at Linden Hill Gardens and Schwartz Brand Studio, honoring the One Block Feast by Margot True and her co-authors from Sunset Magazine. Pull together your locavore spirit, your DIY sensibilities, and a carload of friends and family, and join us for the first annual Small Holding Festival, Saturday, July 9th, 2011, from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Linden Hill Gardens in beautiful Bucks County, Pennsylvania. A small holding offers its owners the pleasure of backyard self-sufficiency through the raising of animals and the growing of fruits and vegetables. The Small Holding Festival will be a day of learning devoted to becoming self-sufficient in your own backyard, garden, and kitchen. Visit our website to buy discounted tickets at www.thesmallholdingfestival.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And I was just listening to a spot about um, the Small Holding Festival happening in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and thinking, ah, that's great, farming, not only the people who have been doing it for many years, but new people getting into farming, gardening, people having little gardens on their rooftops. Uh, It's just... The, the craze of growing your own food is, is just taking off like wildfire. But um, when we th- And we think of the bumper crops of food, and then what do you do with it? You have to preserve it, right? And we think of, of the means of preserving is canning, pickling, and fermenting, and, and then all this artisanal charcuterie of salting and drying and for meats. But these aren't just methods that were derived maybe from our great-grandmas when we remember the old country ways because they had to for economic reasons um, or, you know, for their, the victory garden and war efforts. These methods of preserving food have roots that go way back, way back, in fact, to 
ancient Mesopotamia, as far as historians can tell. And some surmise that the practice may well have been in place much further back than that, in prehistoric times, certainly the methods of drying. But how did ancient Egyptians preserve their food? Ancient Egyptians employed a variety of methods for food preservation. Great silos were constructed to preserve grain, much like we do today for long periods of time. And fish and meat and vegetables and fruits were preserved, once again, by drying and by salting. And, of course, grains were fermented into beer, one of the oldest alcoholic beverages in history. And there's some prehistoric archaeological evidence that grapes as corroborated by Dr. Patrick McGovern of the University of Pennsylvania, grapes were fermented for wine. Uh, wine was, was at first thought to be come around much later, but uh, now we see that, that it was the grapes were being fermented much, much further back than we thought. The English author and culinary historian Sue Shepard wrote a, ter- a terrific book that is a wealth of knowledge for preserving foods and it was called it is called it was written in 2000 it's called pickled potted and canned how the art and science of food processing changed the world she writes that there is evidence as early as 12,000 BC that Egyptian tribesmen on the lower Nile dried fish and poultry using the hot desert sun areas with similar hot and dry climates found drying to be an effective method of preservation well much later, um, Herodotus wrote in the 5th century, much later, in the 5th century B.C., uh, in writing he describes how the Egyptians and their neighbors still, I love that, still, (laughs) dried fish in the sun and wind and then stored them for long periods. The Babylonians and Egyptians pickled fish, such as surgeon and salmon and catfish, as well as poultry in Greece. And sometimes salt was... Easy, easy to extract in other parts um, that then they would use salt for preserving too. Well, then salt became very important. As Shepard goes on to say, salt has been used to preserve fish since ancient times, possibly even before meat was cured. The early Mesopotamian civilizations relied on a staple diet of salt fish and barley porridge. Fish, fish curing with salt, depicted in the tombs of ancient Europe, was so highly regarded that only temple officials were entrusted with the knowledge of the art, Well, which is interesting because the temple officials also embalmed the dead, and they embalmed the dead with salt, and probably because they saw what, what a great job it did with the fish. Um, in fact, it's significant that the Egyptian word for fish preserving is the same, was the same at that time that was used to denote the process of embalming the dead. I'd like to keep this strictly to food, however, at this point. For thousands of years, the survival and power of a tribe or a country depended on its stocks of grain. Harvesting, processing, and storing grain stocks was of huge importance, so so much so that wars were not declared until after the harvest. We know the Nile as being, uh, the Nile, of course, um, being Mesopotamia, the region of the Nile, the whole valley, and it was it's often called the breadbasket of ancient civilizations. And according to Shepard, one of the earliest records of large-scale food preserving was in ancient Egypt, once again, where it was enormously important to create adequate stocks of these dried grains to ensure against the failure of the Nile to flood seasonally. The Nile would flood seasonally, creating this fertile ground, watering all the... the uh, 
the wheat storage, all the grain storage. And huge quantities of grain were stored in a sealed silo where it could be kept for several years if necessary. There are, in fact, records from 2600 B.C. that show that the annual flooding of the Nile produced surpluses of grain that were stored and kept to fill builders of irrigation schemes and pyramid tombs. The Great Pyramid of Chops at Giza was built around 2900 B.C. by slaves fed with these stores of grains, as along with chickpeas and onions and garlic. So not much has changed in that regard. Uh, Jean-Louis Flandrin and Massimo Martinari wrote a book called Food, A Culinary History, and they spoke, too, of the dried salt fish that was part of, um, claiming that was uh, quite a part of the soldiers' rations. And the eggs, the roe from the mullet, probably the gray mullet, which was a periodic visitor to those canals in the Nile, was also extracted during this time in the drying process of the fish, and it was pressed into large flat cakes and preserved. Well, we now know that quite well, too, and it's very prized today, this dried roe from the mullet, and we call it botarga. Uh, and it's it's a very, um, pri- at least I say, highly prized fish item and gourmet item, nicely grated over a bowl of hot pasta with a little butter. Mm. Uh in Food and History by Ray Tannehill, talks about the Nile marshes and canals and preservation by drying. It's interesting because he, they, in that book it's mentioned that uh, nuts, fruit, figs, dates, grapes would fall onto the hot, sandy soil and remain untouched because it was fallen on the ground and nobody would want that. And after a lengthy period of time, someone would come along and find that these had dried on that hot soil and it was good food. Uh, so that was something that could be had by a traveler, perhaps, you know, coming into an area after a, a feast or a festival, all this food that had dropped onto the, the hot sand in the desert and had dried. So then we fast forward to what the processes we know of preserving food, and that would be the canning process. And the canning process dates back, we, you know, it, it's not new, but it's not that old either. It just dates back to the late 18th century in France when Napoleon, worried about keeping his armies fed, offered a cash prize to whoever could develop a method of food preservation. And a man called Nicholas Appert conceived the idea of preserving food in bottles, like wine. Um, they These the bot, one of the earliest bottles called the Appert bottle was kind of looked like a a milk bottle that was a crock. It was probably made out. I guess it, I'm not sure, but I think it was probably made out of, of ceramic. Um, and he would con- he conceived the idea of sufficiently heating the food in these bottles and sealing them airtight so they wouldn't spoil. Problem is, giving these to the armies to to uh, to survive, and they did they could not reuse these bottles. They'd have to crack off the top of the bottle with the end of their, their, their uh, what did they use, what kind of gun they, they used then, or a stone or something. So then the bottle was destroyed, and you couldn't use it over again. Um, and then an Englishman came up with the idea of tins and preserving food, canning food in actual cans in tins. Um, and it wasn't really until 18, wasn't really, it wasn't until 1858 that what we know today as the mason jar was invented by a man called Mason with a sealable top, or, and that was resealable. You could take it off and put it back on again. 
And that is what we still use today, obviously, what we know. These basic methods of, of canning haven't really changed a whole lot since that time. And uh, we now we have all kinds of methods. People now are, it's sort of a resurgence of this canning with their bumper crops, as I said, of, of their gardens and wanting to make kimchi or homemade sauerkraut, pickles, pickles all kinds of pickled vegetables and canned jams and um, not to mention a lot of the you know, wines and beers that, they, that home, make, home brewers want to make. So before there were refrigerators and even before there were ice boxes, there we needed a place to put all this canned preserved food. So there was an obvious nice, cool, dark, damp place in the cellar. And then we have, so hence we had root cellars. And root cellars uh, were a place for the summer harvest um, to be kept over the winter. Vegetables that aren't even canned, some vegetables that would overwinter. And root cellars were a common part of every home in those days, whether freestanding or incorporated into a regular basement. It was, in fact, customary to have a place to store all the produce that was harvested during the summer and quaintly called putting food by. Well, that was old, and now all of a sudden it's come back into fashion again. As I often say on this show, everything old is new again. And my guest today knows quite a bit about that. Uh, he is Jack Kittredge, and Jack is an instructor a farmer, a homesteader, and policy director for the Northeast Organic Farming Association. His wife is director of that association, and Jack's also the editor of the newsletter for um, all seven state chapters. In addition to the farming and organizational work, they enjoy teaching others who are interested in homesteading skills. They run workshops on food preservation, raising chickens, and organic gardening, and really very much sustainable food practices as as we like to investigate on this station often. And uh, one thing that I I found very interesting, I I ran across um, Jack's name. He was giving an interesting uh, course or lecture on root cellars. Um, And I have been interested in in how to to turn an existing basement into a root cellar. And this was part of of an instruction that he was giving at the Hancock Shaker Village in um, Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Uh, where there was a large uh, shaker settlement. And they, of course, are very, uh, the shakers were very much into pres- food preservation and not using much energy. And uh, so, anyway, I gave Jack a call and said, Could you tell our listeners a little bit about food preservation and root cellars and what they're all about? And if they're interested, could they make one? So, Jack, I think we have you on the phone. Welcome to Taste of the Past. Well, thank you, Linda. Um, I, I covered a lot of the the f- ancient history of food preserving, but hopefully you can kind of bring us up to date on what's popular today. And my first question for you is, how did you get into this whole farmsteading lifestyle? Well, um, my wife and I, my wife grew up on a farm in Illinois, a, a real farm, a big farm, 400 acres. And um, I met her in Boston. We were both doing community organizing, and um, we fell in love and, you know, got married. And we had four kids by, uh, in five years. And uh, at the point where the f- oldest one was ready to go to school, 
um, we had decided that we wanted to not raise them in the city, but, but raise them in the countryside, because I had grown up in a place with woods and fields and so forth, and she had as well. So we looked around and finally found some land in Barrie, Massachusetts, that we could afford, and, and came out here and, and built our own house, because we couldn't afford to hire somebody to do it. So we just built it and you know moved in and slowly improved it as we could afford to. Um, but basically, we all we, we just really love um, raising our own food and preserving it and eating healthily and not try, trying to be as much as possible out of the consumer culture. That's interesting, that's, and that's um, that was a, a huge trend in the late '60s, and then kind of you know went on the wane, and now it's really big again. There, it is I think indeed. it's yeah, I think it's wonderful. Now, you your farm is called Many Hands Organic Farm, right? That's right. Our, our four kids were originally the Many Hands. Those are the Many Hands. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, they well, were complaining, but they did it. <laughs> I love the fact that that you are taking all these skills that you learned and acquired from others, obviously, and are passing them on and, and offering courses. Um, what what are some of the types of food preservation that... Uh, you mentioned something, lacto-fermentation, so I, I wanted to know, what are some of the types of, firm, of food preservation that you um, instruct or that you do and that you um, talk to about others, with others about? Yeah, well... Um Probably the simplest is the roots of it. I mean, once you have that built, it's very simple to, to uh, bring your stuff in there and, and store it, depending on the kind of crop it is, to, to store it. Well, what kind of vegetables can you store in a root cellar? Well, what, what over root, root crops do root real vegetables. well there. Okay. I mean, nature has designed a root crop to, uh, is a biennial usually, and it's designed to overwinter that first year and then to produce its seeds. And and the next year. Um, so we're talking about what turnips, potatoes, potatoes, what? turnips, most of the al- um, alliums, although they are not good in, in root cellars, the, the onions and garlic and so forth. Um, things that do well are, yeah, potatoes, carrots, beets, uh, turnips, rutabagas, um, the harder uh, root crops, and um, also you can do well with uh, apples and pears, although for a much shorter period of time, a month or two, will will stay well. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you're going to do potatoes, you just basically uh, kind of shake the dirt off of them and put them in a box and store them in your root cellar, and they will last, you know, from whenever you put them in there till well into the spring. Um, we're still eating carrots out of our root cellar, and now it's July, and they're still delicious. From last season. Uh, wow. Uh. Yeah. It, it, uh, it, if you pack them, there's carrots and beets, we tend to pack in, in bushel baskets in sand. Filled with sand. Okay, sand. I've heard about that. You just fill a bushel basket with sand and, and put them well, in there. Well, you put a layer of maybe an inch or so of sand in and then a layer of carrots or beets and then a layer of sand and so forth. And so you want the each individual vegetable sort of surrounded by sand. And then you kind of dig through it with your hands and, and then just wipe the sand off. And get up, when we come upstairs and wash them and prepare them that way. Fresh vegetables in the middle of winter. That's great. Well, I want to talk more about... Um, how uh, people might retrofit their own basements to be a root cellar, but we have to take a short break. So hold that thought and stay tuned. We'll be right back. Flying through the sky Oh, I don't know why Love comes to me Love comes to me When your mouth 
This is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com, will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients. Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues. Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. Hi, we are back talking about root cellars with Jack Kittredge and preserving foods. Um, and Jack, I um, I noticed that you did talk a little bit, and I, I was sorry that I missed that lecture, about how someone can retrofit their well, modern basement, I guess, if you will, to um, to become a root cellar. Is that, so that's something that's possible to do? Are we, Jack? Root cellar. Yeah, root cellar. Can, uh, to retrofit a root cellar? Yes. The, the basic requirements of a root cellar are very simple. You want it essentially to, to replicate the conditions underground. And that means it's dark, it's cool, and it's moist. Um, and if you can find a section of your basement, often it's the northwest corner, but it wouldn't necessarily be that. That is where uh, a corner of the basement where at least two of the walls are underground. That is, the, if you were to go outside, the, the, the level of the ground would be, you know, five, six, seven feet high on the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> those walls are going to provide natural cooling, and um, then if you can wall off the other two uh, sides that are that are open with uh, thick walls, I what we do is is have uh, foot thick walls that are insulated. I I built up uh, two by four walls, two of them, and offset the two by fours, and then use insulation in between. And so that way you are. And you need to do that so that you're not enclosing, obviously, any sort of heating appliance. If your furnace is in your root cellar, it's not going to work. Right. Um, but find a corner of your house where the where the it's considerably below grade. The walls are where you're not um, enclosing any heating source, and basically build up those walls and a door that's equally thick and, and insulated. And the last thing you need to do is to find some method of ventilating it. Um, it could be a a cellar window that you close up except for some holes that, that you put a exhaust and an intake uh, pipe into. I use a six-inch um, <clears throat> sort of um, chimney pipe for a, for a wood stove and just go through the through the, uh, a window hole. And I, I use two of those, and one is an intake and one is an exhaust, and that way you have an opportunity to get rid of some of the gases that, that off-gas from the vegetables as they're sitting in their... Um, and that keeps them fresh longer. Uh, but basically, you then um, close it up. If you put your you put your stuff in in October, November, uh, and it's it slowly gets cooler. Especially if you uh, have a little fan in your in your exhaust in, in your intake pipe, which we do. Um, just every night when it gets cold, we turn it on and bring in cold air for twelve hours, and mm. then shut it off when it warms up. Um, that encourages cooling faster. Um, but it will soon get down to in the 50s and then the 40s and then ideally in the, in the 30s, even um, the low 30s by December, and you have a, a very cold, dark um, environment. And the dampness, you will have to bring in some water. And um, we, as I explained, when we use our carrots and beets, for instance, in bushel baskets in sand, we'll go in there once or twice a week with a watering can and just water those baskets to keep the sand sand moist, hmm. not topping wet, but moist mm-hmm. so that the um, vegetables don't dry out. 
Oh, interesting. And then you've basically got your cold, dark, and moist environment that, that is what they're designed to um, do best in. Well, now, some people refer to root cellars not thinking of overwintering the root vegetables. The root cellar has just taken on this generic name of a place for storage. And, of course, they refer to it as a place to keep all their canned fruits and vegetables from this wonderful summertime harvest that they that they have that they they can so a root cellar has taken on that meaning too because that's a great mm-hmm. place to store all those preserved foods correct well um it depends on your situation the, the the downside of storing canned things in a root cellar is that if you use metal cans um, metal lids and so forth um in a moist environment they will tend to rust, rust. sooner mm-hmm. uh, yeah. that's a small downside and if that's the best place and that you can get the cold, that's fine. We tend to store our tomatoes and other kind of canned things in a different part of the the um, basement. One that's but cool and dark, but not quite so moist. Not quite so cool, yeah. yeah. Okay. It, it maybe it would get down to the 50s there in the winter as opposed to the 30s in the root cellar. Okay, and that's, so, that's fine for canned stuff. So you mentioned your canned stuff, like your tomatoes. When you give, a, you give a class, I know you're offering a class in September on food preservation. We are, yeah. Um, and people can find out more about that by going to your website, which is... Which is uh, um, the, the, the farm website is MHOF, standing for Many Hands Organic Farm, dot net. Dot net, okay. Uh-huh. All right. And uh, there'll be a button there which you can click on to get to the workshops, which are actually at a different website, but that's the easiest way to get there. So what, um, what type of, of preserving methods are you going to teach, and what well, have you we, taught in the past? Yeah, besides root cellaring, we... Um, obviously, canning is a big one. We do do a lot of canning. Obviously, freezing is is uh, for many vegetables is a is a very convenient um, way to do it. It's not old fashioned, but it's it works very well. Right. Um, if you uh, if space is an issue, um, drying we do a lot of. I have a um, you know electric dryer with a fan, so it's it's uh, um, again not a solar dryer or anything like that, but it's very convenient and it it's quiet and you can sit it in the corner in the kitchen and. You know, I've cut up peaches and tomatoes and all kinds of things all, you know, for two months in the fall and just dry a bunch of trays every night and, and put them in, in canning jars with a, with a, just, you know, screw the lid on and that keeps the moisture out. Hmm. Um, so we have dried fruit and dried tomatoes and things like that, um, dried onions. And you can do, obviously, beans or people do soup mixes. Um, Lacto-fermenting is another very old traditional way, and that's used, it's best done with cabbage, but other leafy, uh, or even carrots and things like, you know, if they're um, grated. But basically that is um, using the natural uh, yeast organisms that are on the vegetables and the sugars that are in the vegetable juices to ferment a very, very slight uh, acid solution, which will then keep them from uh, rotting or decaying because right. the acid is strong enough to keep uh, other organisms from, from attacking them. So we get sauerkraut. Um, sauerkraut is probably yeah. the best best known thing. Right. As, a, yeah. as opposed to cooked sauerkraut, this is just a raw sauerkraut. Uh-huh. It, that way the the enzymes and so forth are still alive and, and it has a very healthy effect for the Well, kimchi the has become just wildly popular. That People yes, love right. to make kimchi out of you know everything. Uh, not mm-hmm. traditional cabbage kimchi, but you know cucumber and what is it? Oh, uh, uh, rhubarb and all kinds of different kimchi mixtures. So that's yeah, you, you you basically can. Uh, I mean, in food preservation, you basically want to keep organisms away from the food that will that will rot it, that will devour it, that will decay it. And there's so many ways to do that. I mean, you can make 
as you were mentioning, wine with, with um, the alcohol will then, you know, keep organisms away from it. You can keep, use temperature to keep the organisms away with, with root cellaring and freezing. You can use salt to, to dry them and to keep the organisms from attacking it. Um, they just, they're, I was talking to a Romanian, a guy who from Romania, who's, whose grandparents uh, had a root cellar, and he said, we made butter, and then we buried our sausages in the butter all winter long. Now that oh. is wonderful. That just, <laughs> so there was raw sausage just buried in butter. Yeah, right. Wow. And, uh, and I think oils and butters and, and fats like lard and so forth all have a very good, um, are, are a good way of preventing Preserving. organisms from getting at things. Well, and I, and I um, was thinking of confit, uh, you know, the, the French method of... of uh, taking a duck or a goose and, and making a confit, and basically they just slather it and bury it in, in the fat of the, mm-hmm. the animal, and that mm-hmm. will preserve it and, in fact, tenderize it and make it quite delectable. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people are, are, are coming back to the realization that natural fats are, are not uh, the same as the you know, manufactured fats right. like the margarine and stuff, and they're right. actually good for you, natural fats. Yes. Well, if people are in that area in Barry, Massachusetts, or want to take a trip, um, you can find out more about the the classes at mhof.net, and we'll post that up on the our website as well. Um, I wanted to learn a little bit more about NOFA, the Northeast or, um, Organic Farming Association. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, it's it's now in its 40th year. Um, it kind of got started in 1971 with people being going back to the land. I think maybe in part because of the the 60s were were a tumultuous time and and people were upset about the war in Vietnam and whatever. And then a lot of people just said, "I want to drop out of consumer culture and and do something that's honest and simple and and um, support my family away from." Corruption and so forth. So it was a very idealistic movement, and most of the people who were involved, you know, did not come from farming families, and so they went back to the land and learned they didn't know a whole lot about how to raise food, and and formed this organization t- as sort of a self-help thing to teach each other what they had learned and to you know collectively market and so forth. So um, it is very much based on that sort of uh, homesteading and back to the land feeling. Get away from the whole the you know. Um, consumer culture and the specialized things that we go to work all day in an office and pay for, but learn how to do those yourself and right. get more control of your life. Well, I've, al- I've always been intrigued by um, the shakers, because uh, I mm-hmm. have a place up near the, in that shaker area, and, uh, and they were very much uh, this way. You know, they were homesteaders. I mean, they, they were leaders in, in innovations of of more natural techniques and machines, right? And they were interested in sustainability and good land, responsible land use, and uh, tried to use as little energy as, as possible, uh, yeah, know, like electric energy. Yeah, they were a wonderful example, I think. I mean, I mean some people can question their, a lot about their, their conventions, but at least <laughs> yes. the, 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 their ways of working, I think they were respected as being hardworking and, and thrifty and, and uh, virtuous and all those kinds of things that, Right, right. Grow out of rural culture. That's right. Well, this has been really interesting because it's here we are in the in you know the the middle of summer and, and the gardens are producing like crazy. Well, hopefully your gardens are producing like crazy. <laughs> um, it depends where you are and how the weather is, right? But um, we don't have that Nile to rely on. But we did have a lot of rain this year so far. We did, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I but I thank you very much, and I encourage your efforts in teaching people how to. If somebody is interested in home, I mean, it's not an easy thing to do to just 
you know, drop off the grid, right? And uh, and and be self-sufficient or um, sustenance farming or, or sustainable farming. And it's not necessarily easy, but I think, yeah, people um, who are motivated just find it very rewarding. Absolutely. I would imagine so. Well, I thank you very much for sharing your information with us. And okay. I hope that people will, will take a look at uh, NOFA and at your farm site and and will instruct themselves on how to make better use of the land and their bumper crop of vegetables and fruits. Again, Thanks very much, Linda. Thank you. Okay. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm Linda Palaccio. Join us again. Thank you. great sadness that we mourn the loss of Ray Dieter, owner of the DBA Bars and co-host of Beer Sessions Radio. Ray made this studio brighter every Tuesday at 5 p.m. with his larger-than-life personality, charm, wit, charisma, and expertise. We hope the archives of Ray on our station will serve as some kind of window into the life of a man who meant so much to those he knew and those he didn't know. And on behalf of everybody here at Heritage Radio Network, we thank you, Ray. Um, and they've been doing that for many, many years. And how do they get that, that barrel of beer? Um, did you ever hear of a place called Beer Mountain? Where's I have that? not, actually. Beer Mountain is a place that I climb every once in a while to find barrels of beer um, for my customers. I go up there. I wear big, heavy boots. I carry a sled with me because there's snow and ice. And, uh, <laughs> and I go to the top of the mountain, and I bring back barrels and bottles of beer for the people at my bars. And that's, that's where I got it from, Beer Mountain. You're awesome, Ray. It's better for growing things. There's just more rain and more, more regular temperatures, not as harsh a winter. Sure. So it just became more economically viable to grow it there. Can I just make a statement? I want to apologize to everybody that asked me why hops weren't grown in New York State, because I've told everybody there was a hop light. <laughs> <laughs> I just pulled that out of my ass. So why did you open a bar? in New Orleans? Well, <laughs> everybody asks that question. The basic reason I opened a bar in New Orleans, um, down there, um, the, a, a bit, well, obviously, it's a drink in town. There's a lot of drink in town. It's also a culinary town. They have some of the best restaurants in the country down there, and uh, people told us we were crazy, bringing a good beer, good whiskey, good drinking concept down to New Orleans, because all the people wanted was, you know, huge-ass buds. And that's all well and fine, and, and there's a lot of fun to be had on Bourbon Street, but there's a lot of shit going on down there away from Bourbon Street. And uh, we opened up DBA in 2000, and uh, we had a, a slow beginning because we had a, a pretty good list, and people were like kind of intimidated. But once the restaurant people, the, the, the chefs, the, the service people in the restaurant industry kind of got wind that we were down there, and we had a great beer selection, we... We got filled up pretty fast. I mean, it worked out real well. And we opened our second place called Mimi's down there. And another aspect about it is down there, you know, a bar owner is a respected member of the community. We, we pay our taxes. We, we employ people. And we're part of the whole trade industry down there, the whole um, tourist industry. In New York City, we're not treated quite the same. And you know that as well as I speak. We're kind of treated as a... Uh, we're not a respected member of the business community as bar owners, necessarily. So you like New Orleans? I love New Orleans. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio. Ray Dieter, a.k.a. Bootsy Collins, was just on the air. Ray, what was it like in the old days? Did you have a band or something? Bootsy Collins, Ray Dieter, DBA. I, I, I play guitar a little bit, but uh, yeah, it was kind of boring. 
The beer business is a lot more fun, Jimmy. You're just too cool, man. I love you, man. <laughs> Ray, tell us a Tom Peters story. I know you've known him for years. You know, you know I have known him for years, and all the stories that I have about Tom, I cannot tell you on the radio. How about a general beer theme story, like <laughs> okay, the I first you. time you met him? How about that? Okay. The first time I met Tom, he was running a bar in Philadelphia called... Um, Copa 2. Copa 2. Copa 2, right. And uh, he was... I went down there. DBA was a brand new bar. We went down there, and uh, he was one of the most generous, wonderful guys. He was like, DBA, I love you guys. Like, how did he hear about us? I have no idea. But he knew who we were, and he treated us like kings. And uh, free food, free drinks... So generous. And then I found out that he didn't own the place. <laughs> so it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense now. Um, if anyone's offering a course like that, it's a scam. It's, it's, it's <laughs> absolutely I took a course at NYU about opening a bar, and it was just a fallacy. It was just ridiculous. They, they have no idea. Um, they have, it's, it's all about math, too. And, and the math they talk about is really fun, but it's really not pertinent to what you do on a day-to-day living. Um, yeah, we need beer. Can somebody right. open some beer right, up? I'm all over this. Give me a minute. Give me a My bottle. My glass is empty. <laughs> this is the first show we haven't been drinking beer nonstop. Right. Hey, Ray, how are you? How was your weekend? Uh, you know, my New Year's is fine. Uh, I made a few bad choices, but you're supposed to. Um, that's just what it is. New Year's is about making bad decisions. Um, and I did that. But it, all in all, okay, I, I lived through it. Like I say, we're the only brewery in the world. We have wooden oak casks. So yeah, we yeah, employ yeah, Cooper. yeah. When are we going to get some keys? Well, well, I mean, that's, I mean that, that's, that's the reason. I mean, these, these casks... We sell them. We sell them in England. You can't ship these things across the Atlantic Ocean. How about if we I mean, provide the casks? <laughs> even if we provi- we we do provide. The when casks. I say we, I mean by America. Well, I can- um, and by America, I mean Union. <laughs> union <laughs> Car- beer. Cask, cask beer done the traditional way, as we do it, has a shelf life of probably about a week after it. Um, after it's brewed. Yeah, but we after have some casks coming over here. I know the Shelton Brothers bring some casks, and I know that the United Nether Importer brings yeah, some that, casks. I mean, that's fantastic. They're, all, they're well, fine. I'm really glad that you appreciate, you know, that's that's great for you. That no you pressure. Cask beer. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, I mean, to be, to be brutally honest, the way that we do things at Sam Smith is that we are very, very traditional, and, mm-hmm. and that's that's what our what, what we believe our success is based on is sticking to our sticking to what well, we I mean, do but best. But IPA was made to be sent to India, and that's before airplanes and big steamships. I mean, if you really want to be traditional, you can like you know we can get a donkey cart to come around south of Africa or whatever <laughs> on a tramp steamer and bring it over. But I think I think it's time for Samuel yeah. Adam Samuel well, sorry Samuel Smiths <laughs> to be. Available in cask occasionally for special events in in New York. Not, yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the beers in England. I mean, uh, most of the breweries, the old old school English ale breweries, would make a barley wine, but it wasn't. They weren't proud of them. It was something that they kept under the shelf, and it was something that like the old guy with yeah. a really greasy red woolly cap in the corner yeah. would get a little glass, and it was like he would get a little bottle of it. It was about six ounces, and he poured into his ale. Yeah, because no nobody would sit there and pound right barley wine like we do here in America. Right. Yeah, and that barley wine that he was pouring into it was his fortification. Ale, yeah, right. His ale yeah. was about three and a half percent. It was a yeah. session beer, and the barley wine back in the day was probably about six percent, six and a half percent. Right, right. And and he didn't want to be seen drinking that because only old drunks drank barley wine. <laughs> but that's a whole old a profile, little nip. Yeah, yeah. Little and now, so he would nice. do. He would he would dip that little glass into into his into his ale, and he would drink that. He'd sip that and quietly have a nice day. <laughs> Can't wait to be old. <laughs> <laughs>